Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. I want to thank you, Lord, for all the many helping hands that were here uh, very early this morning and even now, Lord, are working behind the scenes to make this a, an exciting morning, a, a time of uh, rich and pure fellowship with you and with the body of Christ. Uh, Lord, we want to thank you for giving us uh, this place and this opportunity to share uh, in worship and now in your word. And I pray, Lord, that the word that you've chosen for this morning uh, would greatly encourage us. Uh, Lord, uh, as your first disciples uh, saw the empty tomb and then 40 days later they witnessed you ascend into heaven and then, Lord, they were told that you were coming back. Uh, it, this morning we want to get excited about your coming back for us. And so I pray that you would renew our understanding of just how powerful uh, it is, Lord, to know that you could come at any moment for us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, Amen. Amen. Our text this morning, Revelation 4, 1, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. There are seven raptures in the Bible. There are three in the Old Testament and four in the New Testament. Six of them have already occurred. Starting in the Old Testament, Enoch, a man who lived before the flood, was taken to heaven without ever dying. I wonder how that was reported in the news. I mean, you know, the first, he's the first one. I mean, you know, there was no indication that that was going to happen. The Bible says he walked with God and then he was gone. Uh, taken to heaven... Uh, without ever dying. Elijah, number two, was raptured without dying when the chariot of fire came for him and a whirlwind took him to heaven. Isaiah was raptured to heaven and saw God's throne. He was returned to the earth to continue his service to the Lord. Moving to the New Testament, number four, Philip the evangelist was raptured right after he baptized the Ethiopian eunuch. In his case, he was not raptured to heaven at all, but to a city called Azotus. He uh, came up out of the water as the Ethiopian came up out of the water having been baptized. Philip was gone and the next thing you know he was there uh, in Azotus and so God just moved him over there supernaturally. The Apostle Paul was caught up to heaven. He describes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verses 2 through 4. Uh, there are some who say maybe it wasn't Paul. He says, I know a man you know, and he went to heaven and he saw things that he couldn't describe. Uh, we believe that he's talking about himself with humility, uh, probably the time that he was stoned to death, or stoned and left for dead, and, and then came back to life. And so he went and saw heaven and came back to earth, and Jesus, in his ascension, was raptured to heaven, caught away bodily and taken there. Jesus' ascension is referred to as a rapture in Revelation 12:5, where it says he was caught up to God and to his throne. The seventh rapture, of course, is the one that has not yet occurred. It's the rapture of the church. We read about it in several places in the New Testament, such as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, those are the famous New Testament rapture passages. We see it happen in the revelation of Jesus Christ in the passage that I read in chapter 4, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ is a chronological book. It starts with Jesus ministering to the believers of this church age in which we live. The first three chapters describe the church age 
with the church on the earth in various cities and locations. Beginning in chapter 6 and going all the way through chapter 18, the future seven-year Great Tribulation is described in all of its terrible detail. Now, some of those chapters bounce around a little in terms of their timeline, giving extra detail. But if you follow the uh, through the opening of the seventh sealed scroll, through the blowing of the seven trumpets, and the pouring out of the seven bowls, you end up following a linear timeline that takes you from the beginning of the Great Tribulation through all seven years of it. Chapter 19, the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. He establishes the kingdom of God for 1,000 years, and that is what chapter 20 is all about. Then at the end of chapter 20, you've got a lot that happens. Uh, it's the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. First of all, there's one final rebellion on the earth by Christ-rejecting human beings who were born during the kingdom age. The uh, kingdom of God on earth begins uh, with Jesus in his second coming, and there are living human beings who have survived the great tribulation. Jesus divides between, he says in Matthew, the sheep and the goats, we would say believers and non-believers. Non-believers are sent to await their final judgment. Believers, uh, in their human bodies, are on the earth to repopulate the kingdom of heaven on the earth. And at the end of that thousand years, there are multiplied millions and millions and billions, perhaps, of people on the earth. And sadly, many of them, uh, perhaps even the majority of them, will again reject Christ and be led in a rebellion. After that is put down, also in chapter 20, the resurrection and final judgment of all the non-believers from all time uh, as they stand before what we call the great white throne judgment of God. Which leads us to chapters 21 and 22 of the Revelation which describe the wonders of eternity with Jesus in the new heavens and on the new earth. Now I'm not saying that we know everything there is to know about the book of the Revelation. But uh, it, it, you know, it, it's always accused of being obscure and being weird and nobody really knows what's going on and so why do we bother reading it and all that. And in reality, it's very linear, it's very chronological, it, it's got maybe the, uh, the easiest outline. It outlines itself in chapter 1 uh, there and tells you exactly what it's going to be about and then there's signposts along the way taking you through the church age, through the great tribulation, through the millennial kingdom and you end up in Eternity. Now, going back in our minds to this chronology, uh, we see that after the church age is described in chapters 1, 2, and 3, there's a scene in heaven that occupies chapters 4 and 5. It describes the church in heaven caught up there prior to the great tribulation of chapter 6. And so Revelation 4, 1 reads like this. It says, after these things... The verse opens with after these things, which is the Greek metatauta, and it closes with after this, which is again metatauta. Thus, it is a book that is incredibly interested in timing. Uh, you know, the, the author there, John, writing from the island of Patmos, he says, now here's what happens, and then after this, this happens. Uh, and so he wants to keep us on track. He says, after these things, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. John saw this open door, and he heard a voice, he's going to say, saying, come up here. We commonly call this being caught up to heaven, the rapture. Now, rapture comes from the words caught up in 1 Thessalonians 4.17. I'm told that in the Greek, the word is harpazo, to seize upon by force 
or to snatch up. In the 4th century AD, a scholar by the name of Jerome translated the New Testament from the Greek into Latin. His translation is known as the Vulgate or the Latin Vulgate. He rendered the Greek word harpazo into Latin uh, as the word rapeus, and it was eventually brought into English as rapture. Now, I've never actually had somebody tell me that the word rapture isn't in the Bible, but if you read Bible commentaries, they, they always throw that out. They'll say, oh, somebody's going to tell you that the word rapture isn't in the Bible. Um, nobody ever says that, but if they do, now you're armed with the knowledge that you need. Uh, it comes from Harpazo. Well, maybe we should just call it the Great Harpazo. Only that always reminds me of the Marx Brothers, you know. See, it just doesn't work. I think God was on top of that, thinking, you know, especially at a Calvary Chapel, we can't call this the Harpazo. Uh, you know, otherwise, uh, it just it just wouldn't go over with any real, uh, you know, import and stuff. So we're not going to be Harpazo. Uh, we're going to be raptured, and so and that's that's kind of my uh, you know understanding of how language works. But anyway. John was caught up to heaven through the door before the great tribulation uh, as it lines out in the revelation. And, and so it's, it's convenient for people who don't really uh, take the Bible literally uh, to just look at revelation and say, well, I just don't believe that it's linear. I don't believe it's chronological because if they did, then they'd have to say, well, yeah, I guess I can at least see what you're saying. Uh, John is on the island of Patmos. He talks about the church and and the church age, and then all of a sudden he's gone, and then this whole stuff is going on in heaven for two chapters, and then you get to the tribulation. So maybe there is something to this. And so uh, we believe that there's more than something to it. it. John was caught up to heaven through the door before the great tribulation. He was kept out of it, as it were, and he becomes a type of you and I, the church, being caught up to heaven before the great tribulation. Types are not doctrine. They are important, however. Uh, for example, we said that Enoch was the first person to be raptured. He was raptured just prior to the global flood. He becomes a type of the church, which is raptured before the great tribulation. Noah and his family, they are preserved through the flood. They become a type of the nation of Israel, being preserved and kept safe through the great tribulation. There's another very notable type of the rapture in the book of Daniel. When Daniel's three friends are preserved through the fiery furnace of King Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel is nowhere to be found. It's very interesting. So you've got Daniel and then his buddies, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And those guys are asked to bow down to the image that Nebuchadnezzar has made for himself in the plain. And they refuse. They have this really fascinating conversation with Nebuchadnezzar. He tries to get them to bow down. He gives them every out, and they just say, look, uh, we're not going to do it. Uh, and, and if, you know, our God is going to preserve us or we're going to die, but either way, we don't care. We're just not going to do it. And, of course, they're preserved. You know, you remember the story. They're thrown into the fiery furnace. It's heated up seven times, you know, you know more than it is. And, and it's so hot that the guys who throw them in get burned up and die, but they just hang out in there. And they're walking around in there. And Nebuchadnezzar peeks in and he goes, I see four people in there. And uh, it, it's, one of them looks like the Son of God, and so they're preserved. So where's Daniel? Daniel, you know, it's, the book's got his name on it. I mean, it's, he's a pretty prominent character. You know, where is Daniel? Well, probably, uh, in theory, he's away on state business. 
because he was, you know, second in command there to Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, but in type, uh, he's just absent. He's not there for the fiery furnace that preserves those three Hebrew boys. Uh, and so he becomes a type of the church, uh, kept out of it altogether, just as the church is never mentioned in Revelation 6 through 18. Daniel is not mentioned during the fiery furnace. And so uh, chapter 4, verse 1 goes on, and it says, And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me. Now this first voice was that of Jesus back in chapter 1. And so John is referring back to uh, Jesus, and he described it in both places as being like a trumpet. Trumpets in Scripture are often used to signal and assembling together. We know from 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 that a trumpet will sound as the church is caught up to heaven. It's not a stretch at all to see that John was describing the same event, the rapture of the church. Uh, he says, come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. Up here is in heaven. John would see the events of the great tribulation from the safe vantage point of heaven. Not everyone believes the church will be raptured prior to the great tribulation. Uh, there are at least four other positions. There's probably more, but these are the important ones. Uh, the mid-tribulation rapture position says that Jesus comes for the church midway through the seven years. The post-tribulation rapture says the church will go through the seven years and be removed at the second coming of Jesus to earth only to immediately return with the Lord. There's a partial rapture position that says only super spiritual believers like you guys will be raptured before the tribulation. If, if it happened today, you'd probably go because you're at a sunrise service, you know, and it was a big sacrifice. So you are super spiritual enough, unless right now you're feeling proud of yourself. Uh, and then you'd be left behind. So, but yeah, so that's the deal. That's the partial. I don't know how good I have to be in the partial rapture. Uh, and then there's the pre-wrath rapture position. A lot of people don't understand this. It puts the rapture at different points, but most say about three quarters of the way through the tribulation. Those who hold this position say that the catastrophes in the beginning of the tribulation, in the first three-fourths of the tribulation, are really the result of the wrath of man or the wrath of Satan, not the wrath of God. God's wrath being poured out, they say, is toward the end, and that is when the church is removed. And so, uh, an argument that we use is that God is going to keep us from the wrath to come. And they say, oh yeah, that's true, but the wrath they're talking about is only the, you know, maybe the pouring out of the bowls. Uh, not, it's not the whole seven years. And so why do we hold the position we do? Well, we hold it for several reasons. First, we've already discussed the place of the church in the book of the Revelation. The Greek word for church is ekklesia. It occurs 20 times in Revelation. 19 of those are in chapters 1, 2, and 3. It occurs again in chapter 19, when the church is depicted as a bride returning to earth with Jesus in his second coming. Uh, I find that interesting. There's no mention of the church at all in the detailed description of the seven years of the Great Tribulation. The church is absent from the discussion of the events on the earth during the Great Tribulation because we are in heaven, raptured before the Great Tribulation begins. So the church is on earth, mentioned prominently for the first three chapters, not mentioned again until when? The second coming of Jesus Christ, when we come with him. Second, 
In several passages of the Bible, the church has promised exemption from God's wrath. Revelation 3.10 is one such promise. Others are in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9, and 10, and 1 Thessalonians 5, 9. What about this idea that the first parts of the tribulation are not God's wrath? Well, that's just not the case. Though God may use man or Satan, the entire period of the great tribulation is God's wrath. When the first seal is opened at the beginning of the tribulation, it's Jesus Christ who opens it, and that is setting those events in motion. An angel calls each of the four horsemen who ride across the earth. We might say, if you want to freak people out, you could tell them, we do believe in the pre-wrath rapture, but we believe the entire tribulation is the wrath of God. So if you have a friend who's fallen into this position, oh, I'm, I'm a pre, I believe in the pre-wrath rapture, say, yeah, so do I. Only the wrath begins with the opening of the seal. It's at the very beginning, and so we're not going to be here for any of the wrath of God. Uh, the purpose of the Great Tribulation is for God to turn the nation of Israel back to himself. I've said this for years, and just remember this. When people are wrong about Bible prophecy or have a hard time understanding it, it's because they're wrong about the place of Israel in God's plan. They, they forget, or for whatever reason, or you know, uh, maybe it's ignorance, maybe it's prejudice, that God is still dealing with ethnic Israel, with the Jews. And they start to read everything as if it's only about us here in America. Uh, you know, people are always saying, where's American Bible prophecy? We must be there. Why? Because we're so great. Now, don't get me wrong. We're maybe the greatest nation ever. But that doesn't mean we have to be in Bible prophecy. And we're not. Uh, not in any prominent way. And so, Israel, God is dealing with Israel. In fact, he calls the tribulation in the Old Testament the time of Jacob's trouble. And it's all about the Jews. It is... Uh, the 70th week of Daniel. There's a prophecy Daniel gives, gives the outline of all prophecy, everything that God is doing, and there's one seven-year period of time that's reserved for God to deal with the nation of Israel, and that's the Great Tribulation. So it's not about us. I know we want everything to be about us all the time. You know, do you ever say that to people? It's not about you. Well, people say that to me, but anyway... <laughs> And it's not, usually, but uh, I forget that. The Great Tribulation does not deal with the church at all. It is for the purification of Israel. Now, another thing, the doctrine of imminence makes a pre-tribulation rapture necessary. Imminence means three things. It means, number one, that the rapture could occur at any time. Other events may take place before it, but no event must precede it. Second, the rapture is a signless event. We're looking for Jesus to appear at any moment without any signs. By the time you hear the trumpet, you'll be caught up. Uh, and third, the rapture is certain to happen, and when it does, it will be sudden. It may or may not be soon, but it will be sudden. There are a whole host of scriptures in the New Testament that teach imminence. One of them is 1 Corinthians 16.22, which uses the word maranatha. It was a specially coined word, like a secret password that believers used to identify one another. It was an Aramaic word that the pagans who spoke Greek didn't really understand. It consists of three words which mean, Our Lord come. It only makes sense if the Lord could come imminently. If you knew He couldn't come for at least three and a half to five years, then it would make no sense to say Maranatha. I would say to you Maranatha, and you'd say, No, no Anatha. You know, or 
because you think, well, no, that's not possible. What do you mean our Lord come? No, He's not coming until the very last part of the tribulation. A fifth reason we hold to the pre-trib rapture is that it's presented as a blessed and comforting hope. John 14, 1 through 3, let not your heart be troubled. I know a lot of you think Sean Hannity invented that, but it's, it's Jesus first said that. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. Then in Titus 2.13, Paul says he was looking for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And then in 1 Thessalonians 4.18, he said, therefore, comfort one another with these words, the teaching about the rapture. If the rapture is mid-trib or post-trib, or, you know, at the end of the tribulation, would that be a blessed hope? Would it be comforting? We'd have to change Jesus' words to read, let your hearts be troubled for a while. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to trouble you for a while. Instead of the Thessalonians being sad their loved ones had died, they'd be happy that they had avoided the great tribulation. Believe me, if I thought I was going to go through the tribulation, I would want to die. I'd be saying, Lord, you know, just go ahead and take me home. Uh, this isn't suicide, but I'm going to stand in front of this truck right now. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, seriously, it would affect your thinking. I, uh, people, the only people I respect who believe in a post-tribulation rapture or mid-tribulation are people who are survivalists up in the mountains somewhere because they're acting upon their belief. Uh, I think they're wrong and sad and they're going to shoot me, uh, you know, if I stumble onto their property, you know, by mistake. But at least they're honest. Uh, a sixth biblical reason we hold the pre-trib position is the typology of the Bible. And we've already seen Enoch and the flood and Daniel and his three friends. There's also the whole analogy of the Jewish bridal customs where the bridegroom would go to prepare a home and then he would suddenly uh, romantically return to catch away his bride and she wouldn't really know when he was coming. We could call this a romantic reason we believe in the uh, pre-trib rapture. I think it's a strong reason. I think it might be the strongest reason, tell you the truth. Not because of the Jewish wedding system. I think it's a strong reason because Jesus is romantic and he loves his church jealously. The distinct nature of the church as the beloved bride of Christ is often overlooked. Jesus said, I'm going to prepare your home in heaven and then I'm going to come back for you. And we're saying it is before any part of the Great Tribulation. There's no talk anywhere from Jesus, our Heavenly Bridegroom, about putting the screws to us to purify us or to get us ready. And a lot of times when people talk about why the church has to go through the Tribulation, it's because we're so carnal and we're so fleshly and we're so evil that we have to be purified by the suffering of the pouring out of the wrath of God so that when Jesus comes for us, we're ready for him. Uh, Ephesians tells me that as my bridegroom, Jesus purifies me by the washing of the water of the word of God. There's no talk ever from Jesus about, I love you as my bride, and because I love you as my bride, I'm going to almost burn you to death. Uh, you're not white enough for me. You're not, you know, pure enough for me. I have, to, I have to really put the fire to you. Now, that's different from going through tribulation with a small t. We understand suffering and trials and how they perfect our walk with the Lord. But that's not really, you know, this idea of going through the great tribulation to get the church ready. Jesus said, no, I get the church ready through the word of God and by the spirit of God.
And then I'm going to take the church out like a bridegroom takes out his bride and goes back to the place that I've prepared for uh, her. The carpenter turned itinerant preacher was crucified and buried and then he rose from the dead on the first Easter morning. Forty days later, he ascended to heaven. The two men on the mount, probably not angels, but Moses and Elijah who had earlier been with Jesus at his transfiguration, they told his disciples he was coming back. He'll first return in the clouds to resurrect and rapture the believers of the church age. In between, Jesus has taken up carpentry again. Among the many things he's doing, he's custom building your home. Now, I'm no good with saws and uh, stuff like that. I can't build anything. I don't care. I'm kind of happy about it. But Jesus is a master, master carpenter. And you think, you know, a lot of times you say, oh, you know, what's going on for all those obscure years, you know? What was Jesus doing? You know, you, you see him at age 12, and then you don't see him again until he comes on the scene. He was learning carpentry. And he said, at, at the end of his ministry, he said, guess what? I'm going to go and I'm going to build you a really cool house. Uh, there's something, because some of you guys do woodworking, uh, and you know how beautiful that kind of stuff. Imagine the Lord with wood and precious gems and all, you know, gold at probably more than $1,500 an ounce and, you know, all of that. I know you all rushed out and bought gold, right, at its highest level, you know, because that's what you do. You know, I'm, I'm trying to find jewelry to melt down. But anyway, uh, imagine Jesus with all of those precious materials. And, and some of you guys, that, you know, that work with wood, I mean, some wood is pretty rare, pretty expensive, you, you know. Imagine him these past 2,000 years uh, by hand, I think with hand tools. You know, we always think of Jesus just speaking things into existence. And, and you know, he could do that and they'd be beautiful. But I think Jesus somehow in the, in the way that time doesn't really matter to God, I think he by hand is sanding the doorposts of our houses and carving and, and doing all of this chisel work and all of that. And, and I can't even imagine how beautiful my house is going to be. Uh, and so I guess if you want to believe that that person who made that promise also is going to drag you through the great tribulation because you're just not good enough for him until you've suffered mightily, I, I just don't think we understand the analogy at all. Uh, and so I'm ready for the Lord to come uh, his coming is imminent, and uh, it doesn't bother me at all that it wasn't yesterday and that it could be tomorrow. It's just as imminent as imminent could be. Even so, Lord Jesus, come.